Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. I'm Connor, and as usual, I'm here with Pete. And today, we have a very special guest. That is Brandy Jensen. You may know her from Twitter. You may know her from The Outline, where she is an editor and also has a wonderful advice column called Ask a Fuck Up, which if you haven't read it, folks, read it. It's extremely witty. It's great. You should also send her stuff you want advice on. Um, that's, yeah. And Brandy? Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. And uh, today we're going to discuss a science fiction book that I think all three of us love. Uh, That is The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. And I'm going to kick it over to Pete to tell us a little bit about what that's about. Okay. Well, um, The Dispossessed is unusual because in addition to being a fascinating book to read with ca- uh, characters I'm very interested in, it's also a, uh, a functioning anarchist society. Um, it's, uh, it's a, it's a book within her, in her universe where, uh, well, you know, if you, if you've listened to our show at all, you probably heard the left hand of darkness already. It's the same universe. So you've got, you've got the Hainish, you've got, uh, earthmen going from place to place. You've got the time dilation, all of that. But this is taking place around a more or less utopian planet in terms of how well things grow there and a moon that is very, very unfriendly to life. And that utopian planet has political systems very similar to ours. You know, it's um, and that wealth and all of that has been very good to that world. The moon has a functioning anarchy. And it's about a physicist who gets the opportunity to go between that moon and that earth and interact. Um, I don't know how to put it better than that, that, except to spoil everything. You really should read this book before you listen to this interview. I'm just saying. Oh, are we not supposed to spoil stuff? Because I'm going to spoil the shit out of this book. <laughs> oh, I just, I didn't want to be that guy. Absolutely. As our guests, like, stomp on the spoilers. No problem at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, the subtitle is An Ambiguous Utopia, which originally started out as a marketing copy on the book and has now become, I think, like, officially recognized as the subtitle. So if that sort of gives you a sense of, of the themes, I think An Ambiguous Utopia works quite well. Nice. Well put. Um, well, let's get into it. Uh, when did you first uh, get into Ursula Le Guin? Uh, is this the first book you read? What has she meant to you over time? Um, no. So I first read uh, The Wizard of Earthsea as a kid, and I would put that right up there with A Wrinkle in Time and Tolkien in terms of like why I'm a genre reader to this day. 
Um, it was uh, just like a, an electrifying experience uh, for me to encounter that book in that world that she creates as a kid. Um, I read The Left Hand of Darkness as a teen, um, and then I first read The, Dis the Dispossessed in college, I think. Uh, those are the only two Hainish cycle books that I've read, as uh, Left Hand and Dispossessed. Um, and then sometime last year, I went back, I think on the occasion of her death, actually, I went back and reread uh, all of the Earthsea cycle and just fell in love with that all over again as an adult. Uh, one of my uh, strongest held beliefs is that the world would be a much better place if people read Earthsea instead of Harry Potter. <laughs> Twitter would be a lot better. I promise you that. Twitter would be a hell of a lot better. I also just think in general, I mean, the idea of like magic as a form of ethics is much more interesting to me than magic as a way to like defeat a big bad evil. Right. It acknowledges the complexity. I mean, complexity is a word that comes up again and again with like Gwen relative to uh, some of the bit like bigger, unfortunately bigger genre names like like J.K. Rowling that you just got into there. Um, and we could go, man. This episode could go on for hours. But for the dispossessed specifically, how does this book fit into your relationship with Le Guin and your relationship to sci-fi more generally? Um, I mean, I think this to me is like this is my peak Le Guin, and I know that some people, you know, uh, might. Pick Left Hand of Darkness for very good reasons. I love that book as well. But I think that The Dispossessed is really Ursula Gwynn sort of at the height of her powers. And it it really incorporates a bunch of these abiding themes of her work. Um, one of which is uh, how language shapes reality, how language shapes perception. Um, you can see that both in the naming conventions that they use in this anarchist society you can see it in, in um, the main character is a physicist and he's working on a, a general uh, theory of time that combines um, linear time with this concept of simultaneity. Um, and that is, that again, like the idea of return of cycles uh, is this sort of uh, like ever present uh, theme in, in Ursula Le Guin's work. Um, I think even though Left Hand of Darkness is more overtly about gender, uh, The Dispossessed is more interesting as a feminist text to me, which is probably a hot take, uh, but I will, I will be willing to defend that. Um, I just, I really love the book. I think it's wonderful. So I, I want to dig right into that, actually. We reviewed Left Hand of Darkness, and, you know, that was two dudes kind of stumbling through the really interesting things that that book does with gender, which I, I find deeply fascinating. Why do you, and, and for, for folks who haven't heard our episode on that or haven't read the book, uh, Left Hand of Darkness depicts a world in which there's what you might call absolute gender fluidity and no concept of gender as we have it here in Earthbound Human Society because people will switch genders uh, or, sorry, will only attain sort of, um, I'm, I'm going to butcher that the way I'm saying this, but they will only attain a certain identity for the purpose of mating at select times and otherwise there's no concept of gender. And dispossessed, uh, the humans are, in terms of uh, their sort of reproductive organs and stuff, are seemingly much more similar to how we are. Um, they do have a fixed concept, a, a somewhat more fixed concept of gender and a binary around that. So after that long spiel, Brandy, why do you think Dispossessed is a more interesting study of gender or a more interesting feminist text than Left Hand of Darkness? I don't think it's a more interesting study of gender. I think it's a more interesting feminist text for a couple of reasons. Um, to my mind, you know, what what does a society without gender look like is is an interesting, if you know, kind of pointed question. Um, what do men raised in a feminist society look like 
is also an interesting question. And I think you can ask that of Shevek. I think, you know, the, um, the anarchist society on, all right, I'm going to mangle this. I keep in my head. I keep wanting to call it your ass, which is, (laughs) I, I always call it Anaris, but like, what do I know? Anaris is the, is the anarchist one. And then the capitalist one is, is Urus. Urus. Yeah. Yes. I keep in my head saying your ass, which is, I guess maybe, a, a the point. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you're it's probably not right a family because... show. It's okay. Yeah, but so so Anaris is like founded on the principles of a woman revolutionary. Um, uh, Odo is is the one who um, sort of instantiated all of the values that they live by in this uh, revolutionary society, um, and they are frankly, you know, feminist values in the sense that there's like an equitable division of labor. Um, there's really no um, the nuclear family is supposed to be like somewhat abolished. There's communal child rearing, right? So, so what, what do men who are raised in feminist societies turn out like is an interesting feminist question to me. Um, I also think there's really, um, there's something that the book says about writing as a woman. And interestingly, it gives that perspective to the male character, to Shevek, right? The way that he has to produce his magnum opus, his like scientific um, breakthrough, the way that he has to have that reach publication is that he has to make all of these compromises to power and he has to make it palatable um, to people who are, you know, not supposed to be in charge, but are at the end of the day in charge. And that's often... Um, how women end up getting their writing produced as well, right? It, you become famous by making yourself somewhat palatable to men. So uh, I think the there's there's a lot to be said about um, feminist writing, feminist epistemology, um, right? Her Shevek's idea of physics and his concept of time um, is is frankly not a particularly male and Western uh, scientific gesture. Um, you know, there are lots of ways in which like linearity versus, um, simultaneity, which is something that, um, Shevek is supposed to like bring together and make whole in the book is, is a way of reckoning with like things that are male and female. Yeah, that's okay. That's some really interesting stuff that I don't think would have occurred to either Pete or I uh, about, especially about women, um, in publishing careers and this being sort of an allegory for that. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. so I mean, you know, what do you, uh, I think maybe Pete and I have different views of this and I'm interested to get your take. You know, what do you think about this anarchist and as you identify it as a feminist society on Anaris, which Le Guin has thought through in great detail and dramatizes really nicely, but she's also very invested in showing us the ways in which it's not a perfect utopia um, and just all the complexities and potential pitfalls of that. I mean, what do you make of the society overall? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, like I said, one of her consistent themes in this book, it, it really comes to the fore is this idea of return um, and constant revolution, right? So the, the society on Anaris is based on a principle of constant revolution. And the problem is that their revolution has sort of solidified and, and certain things have returned, um, certain authoritarian bents have returned, certain hierarchies have returned. And that's kind of the problem. You can also see it in, you know, even when Le Guin really, really purports to be like imagining uh, things being other than they are, there's still, Shevek has like a nuclear family, even though you're not supposed to in this society. There's still this idea of Rulag, his mother, 
um, is burdened by maternal guilt, which in the logic of her society should be impossible. So all of these things sort of return. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it is a, a, a completely fleshed out, um, like embodied anarchist world, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and just as it succeeds as a thought experiment. Um, but, but she is in no way like blindly endorsing she's just sort of sketching the contours of it and those contours can be you know limiting in some ways um just out of curiosity when when you've when i know you you've given a good outline of what you've read of Le Guin's. there's a short story she wrote called the day before the revolution that's about odo right before her death did you ever get a chance to check that out i did i have not yet read that although like I said, this is the first time I'm rereading The Dispossessed since college, and I remember that it existed, and I'm going to read it this week. I it, it it's it's in reading that because I read it right before I came on here, and listening to you, it's it's really clear to me that you've got a grasp on this story and have a comfort with the story that I really didn't like the first dozen times through, because it's it talks very much about. Odo's slowly dawning horror that the revolution is like pe- people are treating her like like she's important, like she ranks, like she's a leader. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, like her whole life, she's been fighting against this, and now that she's getting, am I spoiling the story for you? Damn it. No, um, no, no, not at all. <laughs> okay, well, I just, I find the connection really fascinating. It definitely makes me want to talk to you more about it because, like, you're definitely going down the main line of what she was saying in that story later. So, like, that that's a pretty great connection in my eye. Well, um, thank you. I feel like, I, I feel like I'm uh, back in college and uh, somebody likes my seminar. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely uh, <laughs> the vibe we're going for. This is great. I mean, so... I want to ask you this, Brandy. I think as all, all three of us here are left wingers of one stripe or another, uh, you know, we all participate in the left Twitter discourse. And you know, is it I, a I discourse? Is that what it is? <laughs> uh, Honestly, sub- I mean, the, I, I think I tweeted something about this today. But one of my favorite things about Le Guin is that you know, she 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 never posted. She never ruined her shit by telling us that that Ged was into <laughs> anal beads. You know, she just quietly just kept on writing insanely good stuff. <laughs> yeah, she had a kind of hermetic yes. integrity that I think is really hard uh, for writers to achieve now, partly because you have to self-promote through so many vectors. I, I don't know that we'll ever see that uh, again, but it's really cool to think about. I mean, um, do you – I think one of the things that we kind of toss back and forth in those circles is like people really want to make the narrative arts kind of these vehicles for moral or political instruction or tear them down for doing it in the wrong way. I mean, this is an interesting, I think, as you described it, a thought experiment in a certain kind, in a very intensely thought out uh, anarchist society. And I'm not, I think it would be wrong to take it. Actually, we could maybe read her writings. I don't know to what extent Le Guin saw herself as this particular kind of anarcho-communist and was an advocate for this or not. That's an interesting question. But I mean, do we, looking at this book as a case study, do you... How do you think this book relates to debates around how we use texts for political instruction? Are are the narrative arts a good vehicle for ideological dissemination or what is their role in ideology, I guess I would ask? Well, I mean, to like just touch on your first point very briefly, I think Le Guin, uh, well, you know, maybe not uh, like a full on anarchist. I mean, she 
She came from a particular environment. Her father was an anthropologist at Berkeley. Uh, she uh, w- was definitely, you know, of a certain moment uh, in the 60s and 70s while she's writing these books where, um, you know, anar- anarchist thought was uh, definitely woven into her worldview. Um, in terms of, you know, can we, can the novel make better citizens or make us better people? I don't know. I, I frankly go really back and forth. I mean, if it was going to, I would have hoped it would do a better job of it by now. Um, yeah, good point. <laughs> um, I'm not really, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I tend not to want to view the narrative arts, like you said, as a vehicle for the dissemination of ideology. I do think, and this is something that Le Guin, again, has an abiding interest in, is uh, the way in which language alters perception. And I think that there is a certain um, political, uh, ethical, moral power in just uh, accurately naming things and knowing what to call them and seeing them for what they are. And I think that um, when when done well, uh, the narrative arts can really help us in that regard. Right. So, so um, oh, good. No, go ahead, man. It's all right. Oh, I, I was just going to jump in and say, I think it's really interesting to say that the narr- the role of the narrative arts should be descriptive, I guess is what you're saying, rather than prescriptive. And we tend to get we tend to get those things flipped. Uh, <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. Pete, what were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, well, I mean, I'm just always going back to anarchy. Uh, but uh, in in the Hainer cycles, the earth is basically an ash pit. There may be uh, like a billion Earth-style humans left anywhere. Uh, we've polluted ourselves out. And um, in, in it, it talks about how uh, some of the characters believe that Anaris was the only was the only place, as opposed to Uros, where this anarchy could have been set up. Do you think that's the voice of the author, and do you agree? Do you think it, it's the lack of... Uh, it's, do you think it's the scarcity that made this sort of thing possible, the fact that they were forced into doing it? Or is that just uh, a narrative device? Um, well, I mean, it's it's hard to say what the book would have looked like if she had written it on a different planet, you know? It's sort of... Uh, well, that's fair. <laughs> I do think that um, within within the logic of the book itself, there is clearly clearly the the revolution such as it still exists is fueled by scarcity and precarity and the fact that um, all of the you know the the revolutionaries who are still left rely on each other um, in in sort of mortal physical ways that they can't do anything but um, sort of fall fully into this concept of mutual aid because they are in a situation in which like without each other they will all die very swiftly. So um, I think there is probably something to that um, environmental pressure being important. Um, although, you know, there's also on, on, the, on the, the paradise planet, right? There's, they, they seem to have done like an okay job of ecological conversation, uh, conservation, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like there, it's always very striking how, how beautiful the actual world of or us is, um, despite how like ugly the politics. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, she's, you know, Ursula Le Guin is definitely interested in a, in a kind of like, there's an ecological bent to a lot of her writing. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, yeah, I don't, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, 
would the would the Odonians have flourished if they had been given a planet that wasn't completely blighted? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just it's there's an undertone of acceleration to that that scares the hell out of me. Because I mean, the implication is that things will only get better here if there's a big fire. And I don't like that at all. Well, but they don't get better on Earth, right? They they actually are, you know, they, Earth does not fare well at all. Earth is, Earth is only yeah. still around by dint of the gift of the Hanish. The Hanish sort of swoop in um, in this backstory of how there are still even um, humans on Earth is that the original, so, I mean, the, you know, in broad strokes, the, like, um, the world of the Hainish cycle is that uh, there are human peoples that are, you know, live on various planets and different solar systems, and they were all seeded by this original culture that lived on Hain, these original human um, sci- scientists, explorers who went out and seeded various other planets, did some like genetic experimentation, which is how you end up with um, the androgynous people on winter on the planet in the left hand of darkness. Um, and then for whatever reason, they lose their ability to like travel to these other worlds. And so all these other planets are left to develop on their own, which says interesting things about contingency, which is always like very important in genre. This idea that like things needn't be the way they are, that they could be different. Um, so, uh, but to get back to my original point, yeah, Earth is, Earth is a uh, hellscape and things didn't get better uh, through acceleration, they only got better through a literal, like literally a supernatural intervention. So, I don't know that I would worry so much that that's her message. Hmm. Well, this is going some interesting places. Um, you know, I I think we kind of already addressed this, uh, but I think to put it in somewhat softer terms, you know, I think this is a great example, a canonical example of radical imagination in genre fiction. Of literally radically imagining, as you just said, a, a contingent of using the extrapolative tools of science fiction to imagine a much different future. Um, I think it's a slightly different question than whether you know we should look to the narrative arts as a vehicle for like strict ideological instruction. It's somewhat different to ask, you know, can science fiction reach its perhaps its highest aspirations and help us imagine a substantively better future. What do you think about that? Oh yeah, of course it can. That's what it's, that's what it does. That's to me is that's, that's why you become a genre fan in the first place, right? Is there's this sort of like, um, it, it has this imaginative capacity that, uh, I, I don't think you always necessarily get in, um, literary fiction or wherever else you might be looking. Um, and I think that that's what makes, that's what gives genre. It's really like political soul is that it is always a question of, you know, what else, what if, um, and I think for Le Guin particularly, you know, there's dystopian fiction is usually a, you know, a, a sort of, can we liberate ourselves? Right. And Le Guin particularly in this novel is, is asking liberation into what, which is uh, a particularly important question that I don't think gets asked maybe as often. And I think if anything, um, the prevalence of, of dystopias over, you know, the ambiguous utopia of something like this book is maybe uh, something that should be course corrected. I think more people should be, taking advantage of the, the question of liberation into what? As long as they're not calling it hope punk, I think we're all on oh the same God, page. Oh, God, no. Fuck <laughs> hope punk. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I want to open it up a little bit on, on that basis. I mean, you know, uh, 
uh, like Gwyn broadly. So, so, you know, the dispossessed uh, is a great object of study. I mean, if you want to comment more broadly, like what if you were speaking to people, you know, who are for me, for instance, so one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because I wanted to get more into science fiction and I had not read it previously. I come from a literary fiction background. And by the way, this has been a great experience. And Le Guin is my favorite writer that we've gone, that I've learned about through doing this. Um, you know, what What would you say about, like, what are the sort of the cardinal things that you've taken away from Le Guin at, you know, I'm reading her over the years since you were an adolescent. I mean, what are the things that we as readers and writers should take away from Le Guin and she looked at Le Guin for specifically? Um, I mean, I think she is uh, curious about humanity, which is sort of, you know, maybe a counterintuitive thing to say about somebody who writes genre, right? It's usually supposed to be about like aliens or dwarves. Um, but <laughs> she is. She Ouch. Is, <laughs> well, look, I, I'm a fantasy nerd. I'm allowed to like dunk on us a little bit. No, that's fair. Um, she is she is deeply curious about humanity, about human instincts. Um, everything she writes uh, has is sort of interwoven with with an ethics or a morality. Her the way that she uh, constructs magic systems is uh, always tied to like responsibility and the people who use them. You get um, in in the dispossessed. At one point, Shevik describes his like theory of time that the only way you can reconcile linear time with simultaneous time is by thinking about the concept of the promise that, um, the, I'm and I, I like, there's a, in no way can I get into the physics of this, but the promise or, uh, the gift or, um, in Earthsea, uh, making yourself vulnerable by giving somebody your name, like Ursula Le Guin is deeply invested in the idea of trust. Um, and I think that that is uh, a, a, a topic worth exploring. She she takes these very like very simple uh, themes and manages to to spin them out in these incredibly sophisticated and um, beautiful uh, you know often high flying ways. I like that. Very cool. So um, we we've Connor's talked a little bit about what we're trying to do with this podcast. Imagine you were stuck with my job and you had to take Connor and give him uh, a, a broader understanding of, of what was going on in science fiction and, and engage him. What other author besides Le Guin would you pick right off the bat and why? Um, I only get to pick one. You can well, pick as many I mean, as you want. <laughs> well, absolutely. Sorry, <laughs> um, well, I mean, okay. So from what I, it sounds like you're giving him a sort of good, uh, building blocks of like, um, the, the legends of, of genre, right. You're sort of going with like the classics. So I would recommend, yeah. I would recommend maybe some more, um, contemporary stuff. I would say that you should read NK Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, it is uh, also interested in a in a uh, in ecology in very uh, interesting ways. It's it's a feminist text. It's uh, I, yeah, I don't even know what to say about Broken Earth trilogy except for you should read it. Um, <laughs> I also really like Robert Jackson Bennett. Um, his City of Stairs trilogy is sort of like um, it's like a detective novel uh in a in a fantasy world it's really great um i assume connor that you've read china mieville 
Uh, a little bit, but I, these are all good recs. And, you know, I am so, I come into this with so little science fiction background that this is, I'm like a kid in a candy shop right now. So with, with open hands, if you will. Well, yes. so, yeah, so I will say I'm, I'm much more of a fantasy reader than a science fiction reader. Um, but yeah, those would be, those would be my recommendations. Those are great. I think Jemison is someone that I'm really excited to get to. So, and all, all of those are people that we definitely need to get to. So those are exciting. Thank you. Um, actually, well, if you, if I was you, thinking. If you work your way, you know, up into recent uh, fantasy, I will be happy to come back and talk about more contemporary stuff. Oh well, okay. We would definitely love to have you back on because this has been fantastic. Um, so that will for sure happen. Um, maybe for Jemison, in fact. Uh, and I, I actually want to go back to Dispossess, and I'm going to say something that might perhaps bother you both, but that as a that I, I was thinking about a lot as I read this, which is. <laughs> you can always block me out of the college to do this with yourselves. But um, one thing I liked about Left Hand of Darkness was I found it to be an exceptionally elegant story that did not lean, to my mind, too heavily on exposition, uh, despite being incredibly high concept. And I, I just thought that the storytelling choices were all interesting and unexpected. And I, I found it to be a fascinating book on every level and could go on and on about it. Dispossessed, uh, created in, some, in a sort of a similar spirit by the same writer as part of the same cycle of novels, Definitely, there's a lot of architecture of exposition, of fleshing out the thought experiment, of characters having long explanatory conversations. And to my mind, I, I, I'm going to tread carefully here because I'm not, I'm, I, I don't dare to uh, criticize Ursula Le Guin because she is a titan and someone, and someone that I revere. But, you know, I just wonder, uh, does that, does the need to flesh out a thought experiment of this magnitude with this level of detail, does that inherently take away from the storytelling for both of you, uh, for me, I think to an extent it kind of did. The story didn't really hook me until I would say the third act. Um, any thoughts on that? Um, so I would say you're a fucking idiot. No, I'm <laughs> no, all I right. We can, uh, you know, we we've are, got our we promo clip. Disagree, but I will just say um, one of the things that I personally find delightful from a structural point of view is how um, the structure of the novel enacts Shevek's uh, general theory of time, right? It combines linear storytelling with past, with simultaneity, right? You've got these like interwoven chapters of past and present happening all at the same time. Um, and so I find that uh, clever in ways that perhaps not everybody does. Um, and I also just, I enjoy a building's roman, which is what this is at heart. So I'm down with the dispossessed. Okay, so structurally, you and I think that you made a great, uh, great point there. He also, he of course, in a simpler sense, he just circles back to where he started, right? Like that's yes. Um, again, returns, revolutions, right? There's a reason why his wife makes mobiles. It's all like concentric circles are happening all over the place in this novel, and I, you know, I who get a rush from recognizing things because I'm a, I'm a good. A former grad student of this thing is like this thing, and I recognized it. Please give me credit. Um, right, right. I'm, I'm a big fan. There, there, there are layers going on in the dispossessed that I personally find delightful. Well, and Connor, uh, part of that was directed at me, and I guess my answer would: you know that uh, Octavia Butler's one of my favorite authors. Uh, an, an author is not there to entertain me on some level. You know what I mean? Like this, this novel was. Uh, an, a complex folded origami message and 
you know, she she wasn't juggling for my amusement. She was trying to make a point, and I I'm I'm very much okay with that. I was willing to give her the time to make that point. I mean, especially because it was like Gwyn, for heaven's sake. Well, and especially within the context of like what sci-fi tended to look like at that time, which was oh you know God. sort of like dick swinging guys in space. <laughs> um, uh, I think that it was like a really important intervention into the genre. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting that I I uh, I think I think Brandy, you're you're uh, you're persuading me that I am wrong. Um, and Pete, I think. It's interesting that we've totally flipped roles when now you're the one, as the genre fiction expert, you're the one telling me to shut up about being entertained. And <laughs> <laughs> um, what, you're going to read genre for plot, you moron? <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with me? Uh, yeah, that's, I, and those are great answers. I mean, I've spent a lot of time the last few years thinking about conventional storytelling structures and stripping things down to try to be as entertaining as possible. And I think this is kind of the pendulum swinging back and saying, like, you know, don't, it's okay to um, build up your thought experiment a little bit if you're as good as Cicely Gwynn is, which you know very few people are. But it's an, it's interesting to contemplate for sure. If you if um, you can deliver on the promise, right? Le Guin in the promise, uh, she always does deliver. That is a great way to put it. Le Guin delivers yeah. on her promises. I like that. Pete, I, we we have, we do a thing usually where uh, if it's okay with you, Pete always thinks. So I'm gonna out Pete a little bit. Uh, he reads like a book a day, literally. Jesus. Uh, yeah, and uh, so he knows he has a, a quite a large library in his head, and he likes to recommend books to our guests. Is that okay with you? Please do. I would. I love uh, when people recommend books to me. Well, um, I'm gonna tell you what I started, what I walked into this this call going to recommend, and then what I'm actually going to recommend based upon our conversation. So, what I was originally going to recommend was Marge Piercy's He, She, and It. It's basically um, a cyberpunk remake of the Golem myth. Okay. Um, March Piercy is a, um, I consider her to be a, a powerful poetess. And um, it's, there is a good argument to be made that she wrote the first cyberpunk book before Gibson. Though, I mean, boy, that's a can of worms. You can fight with people over that all, all day. My, my point is she's an under-recognized great science fiction novelist, and that's my favorite book from, by her is He, She, and It. Um, but now that I know that you're more of a fantasy head, uh, what I'm thinking about is uh, Tim Powers' The Anubis Gates. I am unfamiliar, but I like the title. Okay, well, Tim Powers, he was uh, uh, sort of the, uh, what would you call it, the apprentice of Philip K. Dick. Okay. And so, like, he's he's written a lot of fantasy novels over the years, and I think that's the one that really took off. It's basically about um, a guy that gets recruited by a corporation to uh, act as a tour guide for people going back into time. Because, you know, he's a historian, knows all these other things, gets sent back in time to deal with the situation, and naturally everything gets completely screwed up. But it's, I mean, it's its very witty. It, it shows a, a really good understanding of, like, 16th to 18th century England. And um, I don't know. It's just fun. That sounds extremely my shit, and I'm going to check it out immediately. Awesome. Cool. Well, I think, you know, I think that's probably a pretty good place for us to start winding this down. That was a really great conversation. And Brandy, 
I think I speak for both of us when I say we'd love to have you back on sometime. And thanks again. And I hope you had fun discussing this with us. I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Always. Thanks so much. 